Hey guys, before we start this podcast episode, just want to give you a little heads up. We are running a giveaway. All you need to do, jump on our Instagram page, drop any comments on any of our posts, or send us a message on our Instagram page or any of our socials, and we'll hook you up with some free gear. Cheers, guys. Today's guest on the podcast is a young man of unique character and strong leadership qualities. He's currently stationed in Darwin and a maritime warfare officer in the Australian Navy. Please welcome my guest, Hewan Fairbun. That's good to hear. Nah, bro. When was the last time you uh, back in Sydney? Uh, I came back to Sydney very briefly in December. Um, I think it was around December 20th uh, was the day I left. Yeah, just came back for a week or so. Uh, then I had to run back up to Darwin because um, we were the operational response vessel over Christmas period. So yeah. we had to be on, we were on eight hours notice to move. So couldn't really have a <laughs> massive end overnight yeah. on Christmas or anything. But uh, you still could have a few drinks. You just have to be ready to go in eight hours time. Just eight hours? What happens after eight hours? Yeah. That's in the hounds after. Eight hours. Uh, we'll, eight hours we would sail. So you'd have to be oh, okay. zeros in the bag and then straight out to sea ah, how long's like those um stints those stretches out at sea for uh we'll usually do about uh we did a pretty long stint um over january we left on the i think we left the 11th and then we'll back in february i think february the 14th we got back yeah right so it was about 30 days it's it's not too bad you get used to it after a while and you kind of enjoy going to sea get into a nice routine yeah you can go to the gym every day, you <laughs> get to your sleep pattern starts to work out. So you're not feeling tired. Yeah. You're with your mates all the time. It just gets a bit every now and then everyone gets a bit angsty and starts fighting, but then yeah, yeah. Everyone can calm down. Yeah. Cause you're on a boat. Everyone's just like, everyone gets on your nerves a little bit. eh? Yeah. It can't happens really, from time to time. Yeah. Can't really go anywhere. Can't really walk off the boat in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. Either. Especially on a, Especially on a patrol boat, they're only 50 metres long and nine metres wide. Oh, so yeah. pretty small for a boat. Yeah. Um, and there's about 32 crew on board. Um, so you don't really have any privacy on the boat. <laughs> you're, living on top of, you're living on top of each other. Yes. Yeah. I'm in a cabin with uh, four other guys. It's not too bad. You've got your own heads and showers to share. Yeah. But, you know, if you wanted some privacy, you still sleep in a room with four other guys. Yeah, exactly. You don't really have anything. How yeah. big are those? How big are those cabins? Uh, the cabin on Patrol is actually fairly decent size. Um, it's probably about six meters long, if that, and then probably about like three meters wide. So you got a fair bit of space where you can get changed and stuff, and like sit on the floor to like put your boots on and stuff, but. They're not luxury cabins uh, like yeah. you get on like a cruise or anything. They're quite small still. Of course, right? It's not a holiday. It's a job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Bro, how would you even get like into the Navy? Because through high school, you know, well, obviously you were, you know, acquainted with the water and swimming and that. Um, and then you also were doing like competitive CrossFit, weren't you? Uh, I wasn't doing any competitive CrossFit. I was just uh, after I quit swimming – um it was my goal to join the navy and i realized i was quite small and i need to put on some size to be able to like lift some sort of weight so that was when i started moving into crossfit because it was still at that conditioning which i needed 
yeah. but also it was still lifting weights. So I got into that. Yeah, but, um, but I, I found the Navy when I was about, uh, I think it was year 10, actually. It was around about year 10. We yeah, were right. doing work experience. Um, I uh, started the year, I was like looking around, you know, parents were on me, like, what are you going to do after you leave school? Um, are you going to go to uni? What are you going to study at uni? You know, you're having to make your decisions then for what you're going to do in uh, year 11 and 12. Yeah. And uh, my, like, I think it was my dad suggested the Navy and be a clearance diver. And I didn't really know what that was. CD. So I had to look into that. Yeah, CD. And I looked into that and I was like, that's a job I want to do. And uh, in year 10, I got the life experience to actually go do work experience with the divers for a week. Oh, so man. I went to the dive team over at uh, HMAT's Penguin and we just did some like, just walked around. They showed me everything, got to do some PT with them. They talked me through like what they do with all their diving. And I was like, this is definitely a job I want to do. And so when I turned 16 in nine months, I applied straight away to the Navy. It's about a, it was about a two year process, I think, for when I like applied to when I actually joined the Navy. Yeah. So, um, you have a basic use session where you go in, they just do an aptitude test, a real basic medical to see if, you know, you got anything that they would just rule you out straight away. Yeah. Um, and at the end of that, they ask you what, they give you a list of all the jobs they believe you would be suitable for. And then they ask you to pick four. So I picked, I think it was maritime warfare officer, which I quote I am currently. Um, I put uh, clearance diving sailor, bosun, and then I just left the third one, or the fourth one blank. Uh, about when I turned 17, I got a call and they called me in for my assessment day. And you go in and it's a bit more of a formal interview. You sit down, they ask you about your job. And because I was going for an officer, they asked me about like what leadership was and what that like meant to me and how I would be a leader. Um, after you get through that one, which was fairly simple, looking back on it, I was pretty stressed, but uh, <laughs> fairly simple. They were just looking for you to see if you'd actually done the research to know what your job was and what you were going to do. And you weren't coming in here with this like Call of Duty style, like, oh, we're just going to shoot guns and, you know, jump out of planes and stuff. You actually looked at what your job was going to be. Yeah. Uh, After that, it was in April of year 11. Oh, no, year 12. I sat for my officer selection board, which is down in Canberra. So they flew, they fly you down to Canberra a group of other young officers all applying for the same thing. Um, you do a tour of ADFA, um, the Australian Defence Force Academy. Um, you get to ask some questions to the third years at the academy, talk to them through, they talk you through like what the interview process is. And then the next day you do a full day of just interviews where they bring you into a room and there's a Navy captain, there's a psych, uh, and then there's a person who's in the job you want to go into. And they just grill you for about an hour or so on like different questions, like what boat is this, what your definition of leadership was. And they're just trying to work out if you have basically what it takes and what they're looking for. Uh, after that interview, they give you a recommendation. Like we recommend you, uh, we don't recommend you, or we want you to come back in 12 years time or two years time and reapply. We think you'd be better suited then. Uh, and then I pretty much waited. I had nothing for, Pretty much till the last day of HSC trials, um, my phone just started going off. It was a group chat with all the guys from the assessment day asking if we'd all received an email. And I checked my emails and sure enough, there was an email there with an offer for to join the Navy. Susie. 
No, because um, I don't know if you know. Uh, shout out to Ryan McAndrew. Yeah, he's actually, he's, uh, he's done the army. Yeah, he, he was um before he left, he was like telling me and a whole bunch of our mates like that like similar process for you. It was like you had to do all these like psych tests, fitness tests, give like every piece of like medical history that he could provide. And um, because he's actually got like a metal plate in his head from like from from birth. So they put it in, in birth. And he said like it was a massive, like a massive um search for like whatever certificate or kind of like accreditation because that doctor like passed away because like that was like something oh, that wow. could yeah that was something that could I think might have like made it a little bit iffy if he could join in that but like yes yeah, yeah we definitely do a pretty intensive medical so I actually had my five-year medical today so I went in they uh took some bloods got me on a scale, got me to do some like uh, sit-ups, squats and stuff like that. Just want to see how my body's moving. Uh, took my vitals and it was pretty much like an interview to see like how I felt, you yeah. know, as in like, yeah. do you have any niggles, any injuries? And then after that, I had a ECG, ECG because um, I'm currently doing my diet medical at the moment at the same time. So a few extra tests, but basically they want to know if you've got any underlying condition, which could one day just come up and, bite you yeah. essentially so people yeah. have, people have joined and then they one day they find out they got an allergy to one poor girl i know she joined the army was out field one day and it turned out that she had an allergy to grass so she could no longer be in defense because she was out field constantly and she couldn't she was allergic to grass so basically she was pretty much useless outfield oh yeah oh yeah that would have been insane like what she's just like Came up in a rash or like she just yeah so she came up in a rash just like got really puffy around the face and so they medevaced her and then they related the terminals from just from being exposed to grass for a prolonged period of times oh that is a tough way to go bro <laughs> yeah. uh how long did it take for like um the position you applied for to like open up because um i know that you kind of that the certain position you apply for has to like have availability for you to like jump aboard and start that entire like training process. Was it like almost straight off the bat for your CD position? Uh, so I'm not a CD. Um, I'm a maritime warfare officer. So oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, well, I'm later hoping to specialize as a clearance diving officer, which is uh, probably about two years down the track. Uh, but for maritime warfare officer, that job's actually a high priority job. Um, we're in constant need of maritime warfare officers. Um, so we've got like an ongoing pipeline, which is the training I'm in at the moment, where it kind of like pumps us out. And there's always a course going on. And it's usually about 40 to 50 uh, officers going through this one course at a time. So it's a pretty high priority job because um, it's got a quite high turnover. Um, a lot of people do it for a short period of time and the lifestyle doesn't exactly fit people. You're at sea constantly. Um, so some people after their service, they, a lot of people after their service get out instead of staying in. So they, they're constantly just trying to keep a uh, good turnover of people essentially. Yeah, right. Why is it like such a high demand job? Is it like a lot of maintenance on certain things and constant, you've got to constantly upskill yourself with new current like technologies they bring in and whatnot? Um, it's a pretty 
intense job. So on the ship, I work four hours on, eight hours off, and I'll hold a watch for those four hours. And I'll be on the bridge, and during those four hours, the ship is under my control. So I'll be directing the helm, where to drive the ship uh, and how to drive the ship. Um, I'll also be dealing and running the entire ship's program. So whether or not that's launching a hel helicopter, launching a seaboat, uh, and I'll respond to any emergencies we have. So fires, floods, toxic hazards, any engineering breakdowns. So you're constantly working and trying to stay ahead of what's coming up. So you'll do one evolution and then you've got to quickly start planning for the next. So those four hours are quite intense. It can be quite intense sometimes. Um, so it's quite a demanding job because that's just your core job. And you're also expected to do uh, a lot of other things as well. So we'll have a division of sailors, which we have to do all their admin for as well. So maintaining like when they apply for leave, if they've got any personal issues, we're going to deal with those as well as basic admin for the ship. So you're constantly working uh, and a lot of people, it's a hard job. So a lot of people, once they do it, they uh, don't want to do it anymore. So they'll get out. Yeah, I imagine so. Like being in charge for a ship for four hours every day, is that like seven days a week or? So when we're at sea, we'll do four hours on, eight hours off. Like the basic days, um, we'll have wakey-wakey at seven. Um, and then at eight o'clock, you have seven to eight to get ready. Um, eight o'clock, I'll go on the watch. I'll hold that watch from eight till lunch at midday. I'll get off watch and in the afternoon, I'll do any admin or any other tasks that are required. So that could be planning a pilotage into a port, um, mustering equipment and stuff like that um, and then after 1600 you are able to essentially you can time your own so you can go to the gym uh, you can go have a nap if you want to have a nap uh, but then you have to basically just be ready to go yep. at all times in case of the fire uh, or a flood and then after that time you'll have a uh, dinner around about 5 30 and then our crew mostly after dinner will all go to bed uh, I stay up till eight o'clock and then I'll go and watch again for another four hours and 12 o'clock I'll get back into bed. And then that's usually when I'll go to sleep. Yeah. That's a basic. <laughs> Pretty intense. Yeah, it can be at times. Yeah. What was that? What was like the first day like when you were at the helm of the ship? Was it like really uh, nervous, hoping nothing was going to go wrong? <laughs> Well, uh, my first day when I took the watch by myself, I was pretty nervous. Um, so it, the ship's your responsibility. So um, you're monitoring so many different things at once. You can almost feel, you feel very overwhelmed at times. You've, you're just drinking from a fire hose at the amount of information people are throwing at you. And you're trying to pick out the one or two bits of information that you're like, okay, I need that. I need this. And then apply it to your job. As well as you now report directly to the captain. So any report you give is straight to the captain. So if you mess up a report, uh, you've messed it up to the, the boss of the ship, basically, and now he's he's going to be coming down on you. So oh, it can be pretty yeah. daunting at times. Yeah. Uh, did you have to do, like, any, like, intense training, like, with the Navy SEALs? I know that's, like, a bit, like, special forces and, like, another country's military um, gecko but did you have to like do all that drown proofing and crazy evolutions and work with rebreathers and whatnot 
Uh, so um, when I was at uh, the Australian Defence Force Academy for my, while well, I was getting my unit degree, uh, each year they have a, what's called a leadership challenge. And uh, basically they uh, will develop an exercise that will be outfield and um, they'll put you through some scenarios. I want to test your leadership to see how you react. And you'll have the lead and they'll give you a scenario like carry these stores or uh, help this village out. And uh, LC2 was the one where they wanted to test our resilience as a, leadership, as a leader. So uh, the first night there we did, it was a very Navy SEAL style on the beach overnight PT session. Uh, we started just as the sun went down around about eight o'clock down in Jarvis Bay. And it was just in the water, out of the water all night. None of us got any sleep. Uh, we got what they called sugar cooking. So you'd, down, you'd go out into the water, dunk yourself, get all wet. And then you'd have to leopard crawl up the beach, cover yourself in sand. And then you'd do a little bit of PT covered in sand for a while. And then next thing you know, they would ask you to go and uh, grab a rope and lay in the water, holding the rope out of the water. So it's pretty fun at times, but other times it can suck. Um, but yeah, we did some pretty intense PT that night. Uh, and then after that, we kicked on to the rest of the exercise. So it was kind of like a buy-in PT session. Yeah. Were the instructors just like berating you the entire time, just in your face screaming? Uh, they were to an extent. They were to an extent. Um, they were trying to like, they're trying to push you to a point where you would break, um, or you know, push you way past. You're already uncomfortable. You're exhausted. Um, you know, you're not doing a proper push up because you you feel like your arms can't work anymore, and they're just telling you, just yelling at you about not doing a proper one. But it's all about just building that mental resilience, and you know, being able to push through that. And keep going, even though when you, you know you're not going to be able to do something, um, you know, just trying to find a way to be able to do it. So they're looking to, it really helped build everyone's resilience who did that exercise. Everyone came out of it feeling a lot like, proud of themselves. They like just did something that was pretty tough. Um, not many people have done it. So they're like, oh, I'm happy I've done that now. So really helped to build everyone's resilience. Yeah, it would have been like such a, almost like a overcome of like positive and happy feelings that, you got through such a daunting, intense task, eh? Yeah, it pretty much was. The, old, the exercise as a whole was really tough. So we're outfield for, I think, a total of 10 days. Uh, it was both food and sleep depth. So by the end of it, everyone was just exhausted. But we all looked back at it and it was like, it's actually pretty fun, you know, doing nighttime swims and stuff like that. And, like, everyone was pretty proud of themselves to be able to get through it. That's doozy. Was it like, did you expect kind of what um did you expect like what occurred during that time or were you like this is a little bit more intense than what I thought when you were entering into like that 10-day training phase uh we all went in there pretty uh well they they try not to tell you what to expect so they try and keep you in the dark a lot so you can't really prepare uh and then about halfway through the first night of PT when it wasn't ending, I think it kind of dawned on everyone, like this was the standard for the exercise. And uh, we all kind of realised this is going to be a lot tougher than what we previously thought. Um, so no one really got told and no one really could prepare for the exercise. Yeah, right. Because, um, you know, like you see it on TV, it's just like, or on Instagram, you see like highlights of kind of like what the US Navy does. And it's just like, monotonous ongoing crawling through the sand and 
head in the water, in like freezing water, and they're just like screaming at you, just trying to break you and whatnot. It's just like, is like to me, it's almost like I want to see what that's like and see like how I would react and see how like mentally tough I would be. Were you like, when you were doing it, were you like, this is, this is like, okay. Like I'm in like an okay position or was it just like, I'm just getting constantly battered right now. Uh, I feel like during that exercise, like a lot of the times you're like, I'm exhausted and you're like, I really like, I don't think I can do this, but then you kind of like realize like, okay, it's not that bad. You I'm tired, but everyone else is just as tired as me. Um, there's people out there that are a whole lot more unfit. My like way I got through it was there's people there here that are way unfitter than me and they're still going. So how much pain must they be in? And that was kind of my motivation to be like, all right, I've got to keep going. Also during that exercise, you're constantly in a team. Um, and so you were having a, if you, you don't want to let the team down. So if you started lagging behind, now the whole team has to stop and wait for you to catch up. And them stopping, that could be the difference between 10 minutes on the ground or 15 minutes of, you know, sitting down, having something to eat. So really you were just constantly pushing and stay with the team. And that kind of made everyone work a lot harder together. And you had that constant encouragement from like your teammates being like, come on, it's not that much further. And you were trying to give the same to other members of your team that were struggling as well. Of course, cause you kind of like get that um, um, thought in your mind. It's like, I don't want to let everyone down. I don't want to like, let other people suffer because I'm lagging behind and whatnot as well. Yeah, that was essentially what it was, was the team like always, and like we constantly would cover for each other in our leads. So like someone might forget to, you know, do a safety briefing for, you know, a certain part, but we'd all kind of go around and like whisper to each other, like, Hey, you've got to say this, but you know, we, we're not going to like touch that rope there. Cause it's technically, you know, part of the exercise. It was like electrified. So, like, everyone goes around because we all want everyone to pass. Like, there's no um, – no one wants to fail, have one person fail. So, we all kind of, like, banded together to try and get everyone through. When you think back back now, was it more like – did you see yourself, like, head of the – whatever team you were, like, the head leader? Or did, like, the instructors want almost, like, the more vulnerable or, well, say, like, weaker mind people to, like – go outside their comfort zone to like lead the team? Was it elements of that or was it more like it's just they put everyone through such a strenuous situation that it will kind of naturally um, force out the good leaders leaders to take over? So um, during this, like that entire exercise, um, there was a six hour period where you were put in charge of that entire like phase. So you're given a scenario and it was your responsibility to not only brief your team but liaison with any external like members of your team as well so like sometimes i'd give you a radio and be like oh this is the search aircraft you know you can talk to the search aircraft and they'll be able to tell you where this and this is so um it was your everyone had to step up to the plate and be a leader um but it was also looking to see how people because we're all officers we all want to lead and it's all like a core part of our job. We're all wanting to be that like leader in every situation. They're also looking for members who could be a part of the team. So a big assessment on that, a part of the assessment on that uh, exercise was also seeing how you respond as a team member. So when someone tells you 
when your like guy in charge goes, you need to get in the water and you got to go find like bricks. I think there was like uh, we had like, bricks on the floor that we had to go pick up and bring into the thing to help build a radio tower. Um, and no one wanted to do it. It was real overcast. It was late in the afternoon. We could feel that it was getting real windy. It was getting real cold. And that was looking for the member of the team that when they were told by their person in charge, you got to get in the water, that just did it. So being a team member, a team player is also a huge part of being a leader on those exercises. Yeah. Uh, what now come to think about it, like, who comes up with all these, like, insane challenges? Because I remember there used to be a guy at um, the Maruba Jiu-Jitsu gym where I'm at now who's in, like, the army since he was out of high school for, like, 25, 25 years. And I always remember he was saying... He was saying one of the challenges was it was just like a big like mind fuck of a challenge where they had to put on all their um, almost like a chemical chemical warfare like um, outfit with the mask on, thick rubber gloves in the middle of the day. I think they're in like the summer heat and they'll like go through this jar of like grains of rice and they were different colored and to separate like the four different colored grains of rice into like their intended spots. And he was just like, it just like melted everyone's brain, just trying to wrap their head around it. Cause I couldn't grab yeah. thick ass gloves and that. So, so the staff, like, so uh, at Adfa, there was a staff, each division had a sergeant and uh, a divisional officer. So a captain in the army or a flying officer or flight lieutenant or a lieutenant in the Navy. And uh, it was their responsibility on the side of being not only our DOs, but also to plan all these exercises. Um, as well as we have the PTIs who come up with these like PT sessions we do during the week and stuff. So they all come together and they're the ones who envision these exercises. And they mostly come up with the idea of what they want to get out of the exercise. So for the second LC2, it was resilience. But for uh, LC1, it was about building a team. So that will be dependent on what uh, exercise they get us to do. So, you know, as a team, building a team, they wanted us to, you know, do lots of stores, carries and like stuff that would build a team. But like with the resilience one, it was just about breaking us down and seeing how, how far we'd push ourselves to stay a part of, you know, as a part of group. Yeah. Do you do much um, or have you like read much about different types of military leaders? So like, uh, Jocko Willink, are you familiar with him? Navy, ex-Navy SEAL. Yeah, I know who he is. He's yeah. uh, about extreme ownership. Yeah, he's got like a few books about extreme ownership and that. Um, and I've read, I think it was like the second copy of Extreme Ownership. And just the, the way he relates and like links between military leadership and business is like really interesting to see. Almost simple. It was simple in hindsight, but it's like a real good link between the two. Did you do much, or like, do you do much study of other leadership, like methods and techniques to improve your your crew, your camaraderie? Uh, personally, I'm pretty bad on that front. I don't do a lot of like reading of like people's biographies and stuff like that. Um, I'm just not someone who enjoys reading or likes it. I'm more of a visual learner. Um, but 
So I really haven't done much of that, but we do learn about like the definition of leadership and we do have some, uh, when we're in Adfa, we did have some leadership development stuff. So like they'll get us to plan exercises, you know, put us in scenarios and ask us what else, what we would do. But I haven't really done any personal um, like development of my own leadership and I probably should. Yeah. Do they, do they kind of like encourage kind of those leadership roles to like, um, get mentored by other say navy personnel just to like almost get like a bit of a reference or a bit of a feel to like what it's like to lead um people so like people under you like your sub- subordinates uh well i feel like the navy's a bit different to how the other three services work especially going through uh army so after my first year so for when i first joined i went straight to the NEOC, which is new entry uh, officers course down in Jarvis Bay. And there is, it's essentially basic training, but for officers. So you're pretty much from day one, you're expected to be a leader and, you know, or they're expecting to develop your leadership over the entire uh, course, essentially. So you're constantly either marching the squad around or in charge of like getting the squad ready for um, like rounds and stuff like that because it's a lot harder to lead your peers than it is to lead your subordinates because your peers, they don't have to listen to you. They actually have to be under your leadership to do something. So it's a lot harder to get them to do stuff because they don't want to listen to you because who are you? You're the same rank as them. You know, that you've got no more experience than they do. So it's a lot harder to lead those. So they get you to lead your peers first because um, once you do that, it's a lot easier to lead your subordinates. But after I finished that uh, new entry officers course, I went straight to sea on a, on a vessel, essentially. And uh, I was 18, 19, and I was put in charge of a vessel when I was driving that under the supervision of someone, of course, but still was, I was having to tell sailors to go do stuff and they were calling me sir, saluting me and stuff like that. It's quite daunting when you think about it. You're 18, 19, and you've got chiefs who are, in their 30s, late 40s, been in since they were 18 and they're calling you sir and looking to you for what they should do. So it's quite daunting at times, but there hasn't been any real, uh, they don't really take you under their wing to be like, this is how it was. They kind of expect you to come in with already your own personal idea and then they want to develop that and see how you go from there. I see. That's uh, like going back to what you said, being essentially young adult, still a teenager and having, you know, full grown adults, you know, at your, at your will, waiting to hear you speak, (laughs) waiting to hear you give like orders and that. Were you just like kind of hesitant at times or were you just like, I need to get X, Y, and Z done and we got to do it as a team? I was definitely hesitant at times. Pretty, it's pretty daunting. Um, because like, especially when I first joined, I'd been in for less than a year. Nearly every single one of the sailors I was leading had been in for almost double that time. So they've got way more experience than I do. They know, they probably, they know the evolution better than what I do. And I'm there briefing them on how to do, how to set the anchor before we drop the anchor for, uh, for the night. And they've done it a hundred times. And this is my first time, but they're waiting on me to give them the orders and what to do and brief them. So it can be quite daunting because 
you're like, oh, they know this already. Like, you know, they don't want to listen to me. But you kind of have to get out of that mindset and be like, no, they actually, there's like the reason why I'm going to brief them is because, you know, I'm looking at it from a different perspective. Like I might see like something that they've been doing it for so long, they're no longer doing it safely or they're missing a certain aspect of it. So it's just all about looking at it from a bigger perspective and being like, okay, yeah, they're hands-on, but I'm actually looking at the bigger picture and you take a step back and you have to watch that, which is something I struggle with a lot because you don't want to get, I like to get caught up in the details. So if we're building a tent or something like that, I'll always like try and help out, but it's my responsibility to step back, you know, watch them build it and see if they're doing it safely or they're trying to do it correctly. Yeah, pretty much um, not micromanaging your yeah. team, not always over their shoulder and telling them exactly what to do because they kind of need that experience for them to figure it out. And it must be a bit humbling as well to like take a step back, have them figure it out. And if they make a mistake, they kind of learn and they do it better next time. Yeah. How often uh, are you guys in the water? Do you still do all that go um, underwater exercises and whatnot with the scuba gear? Uh, no. So, cause currently as a monoxal watch, I'm not doing any diving in the Navy. Um, it's just basic. We don't get it. I haven't been in the water in the Navy for a while now. <laughs> what was that like being doing all those um, dives and exercises? Uh, I haven't done any yet. Oh, okay. I see. I guess you, I guess you. I yeah. thought you would have done, you would have done some of it for like um, almost like basic training ish, just so they can get the feel, you get the feel of it. Uh, we do a basic swim test when we all join the Navy, which is a requirement for all personnel. Yeah. Uh, it's real basic. Um, but apart from that, we've done a few swim sessions where they'll put us in our cams and make us swim back and forth, you know, get us used to having weight on us in the water. Uh, but it's really just about building people's confidence. But we haven't really done any like, diving exercises. Um, that's a lot further down the road for me in my career. I think it's about another two years before I'll get the chance to try and specialise as a diver. Yeah, and right. then I'll be full on diving and, you know, learning about how to be an officer, diving officer. Do you do any, like, your downtime? Do you guys um, – have you, have you actually seen – they call it Underwater Torpedo League? I think they do it in America and a bit in Australia maybe. Uh, so launching from the torpedoes and stuff like that? No, it's like a – you know, like underwater hockey. It's kind of like oh, that. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like that, but they've got like a, almost like a torpedo – you know, like a Nerf torpedo-shaped, like, um, I don't know what you would call it, thing, and you just throw it into, like, a little goal. And so what they do is they, they just have goggles on. You just hold, like, one breath, hold your breath, go down, and they just, like, almost strangle each other to get the little torpedo off each other. And it's just like... No, a- I've, uh, I've seen underwater hockey before. When I was playing water polo, they would always be on, like, either before or after us. But I've never seen that underwater torpedo play before. Right, you need to check. you need to check this out because they had. I'm pretty sure it's just. Um, it was particularly for ex marines and ex service people who are in the navy and that, and they're kind of like, you know, wanted to build like a bit of a community, bring all these ex servicemen and women together, and so they just do all this intense training, like seriously dumbbells underwater. There's a there's a few photos of like one person would have two people on each side of their arms holding them underwater and I'd have like a, like, I guess 
40, 50 kilo dumbbell walking at the bottom of the pool, like going, trying to go end to end with two people lagging yeah, behind. that's a bit extreme. But it was like insane. I was like, like, imagine like doing that. I guess I pretty much do it every day. And then for fun, they just kind of strangle each other and try and throw a torpedo into like a six, six inch by three inch goal, like a little net in the bottom of a pool. Yeah. Fucking insane. Yeah, I'll probably have to work up to that, but uh, <laughs> it's like insane. It's like so fun to watch though, because it's like so intense, and they're all like underwater, one breath, but they're not like they're not elbowing each other, but they're just trying to push, smash, like almost yeah, trying to rip it, snap yeah. down their heads. Yeah, did you have to do any um kind of combat, hand to hand combat training as well? Uh, I haven't done, you don't uh, have to do it. Um, uh, If I do go down the route I want to go down, I will learn part of it and it'll be part of my training. Uh, But um, no, I haven't done any like hand-to-hand stuff. There was a jujitsu club at ADFA. Um, I did turn up to a few sessions, but, you know, didn't really get involved in it too much after that. Was it a Gracie gym? Or a Gracie? Uh, No, it was. It was a. Uh, it was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was run by uh, one of the chaplains. So um, he was a. I think it was a black belt, and he just taught people on the side. And he started his own club at uh, Adfa, and so people could go down and learn how to do Jiu-Jitsu with him on uh, Mondays and I think Wednesdays. Yeah, that's doozy. Because I think it. Um, I think you're gonna well start to see a lot more kind of like that Jiu-Jitsu into like the military and that because like with the gi. And with your, like, I guess, combat outfit is kind of similar. But, of course, you know, jiu-jitsu, we're not, like, we're not fighting to the death necessarily because you can tap out. You can't really tap out in the field because, you know, ain't no one going to stop you in the field when it's, yeah. like, go time. But um, I also came across, what was it called? It's called the Australian Army into, I think it's Barrage Combat Tournament. I think it's, like, the... yeah specifically for the army, I think. So, like, they're in the, you know, Octagon UFC uh, MMA cage and there's just literally no no gloves, no shoes, but you can choose to wear, you know, like the – is it a flat vest? Yeah, they had uh, plate carriers on. And, um, yeah, I've seen that, yeah. It's definitely – it's competition between um, the different battalions around and um, regiments. And they'll all get together and um, they'll pretty much have their best fighters go against each other for, you know, like honor amongst all the different regiments to see who's got the best. Uh, it's definitely encouraged within infantry units as well, especially because they're the guys, they're the main force of the army. So they're running around um, doing all the attacks and stuff. So they're the guys who like to, you know, get in the cage and do all that stuff. Yeah, because it's, um, I think they've got a few, a few highlight videos on YouTube and it is just insane just to watch like all these men and women go at each other a hundred percent, not striking. Obviously it's more grappling and they just throw each other and they're just absolutely going mental. It's just like, yeah, insane the, to watch. The rivalry between um, some of the regiments is pretty massive. Um, so, you know, it's all, it's all for bragging rights essentially. So they all, like they just want to be the best regiment out there, so they're gonna they're gonna set go hard because they don't want to lose. Do you see like um with like the different regiments and the different um 
areas in the defense force is it more like different vibes with each uh, um section so like is the navy like a bit more chilled because everyone's like on the water near water and then army's a little bit more intense and the air force is like just a different vibe in that yeah um each of the services you know has their own different cultures and stuff like that um i think in my opinion air force is just going to be the most chill um you know they don't uh just the way they go out about treating their personnel and stuff like that it's a lot better navy is very much i feel like it's a happy medium between air force and army um because we all work together there's um you know because i like on a boat in my cabin on the boat it's me and three other sailors so you're working constantly with your rank like lower ranks and stuff like that so you get to know everyone a bit more personally um i feel like it's a bit more chill there's no there's still formalities, but they're not so strict on these formalities that they get in the way of stuff. While Army's very strict on all their formalities and like how they have to go through the chain of command and stuff like that. So each of the services has their own different, I would say, cultures. Um, and within each of those services, within each like core or ship, each ship has a different, you know, way of, they go about doing business. Yeah. Have you had to um, work with people in like different, areas of the military and like kind of like delegate them roles or do they have their own set roles and they kind of do their own, well, not do their own thing, but like have their own objectives in that? Uh, I haven't really worked in a proper tri-service environment yet. Uh, I'll probably be into the future when I'll start working in a tri-service environment, but there's currently defense forces moved from the last 10 years to going from individual services. So now we're trying to work together as like one big whole defense force. So um, they have started putting together like talisman sabers, a big exercise we have every year with the Marines. And that's all tri-service. So the Navy, Air Force and Army will all work together to achieve their objectives. So a bit more of like a cohesive unit rather than yeah. three it's, separate uh, defense force. Yeah, we're trying to go for that whole, we're one defense force rather than three different uh, services. Is there a lot more, say, like new curriculum training coming out of that then? Uh, yeah, there is. Um, so tri-service is one of the catchwords. You know, it's the key word that everyone keeps throwing out, tri-service. Um, heard the death of it, especially at ADFA, as it was of a, one of the only tri-service academy in the world. So you're definitely getting a uh, force-fed tri-service, but it definitely works, especially as coming from ADFA. I know, I know a lot about the Army and the Air Force a lot more than people who didn't go through ADFA. So I know how they work and, you know, um, a few of the little, like, nuances that other people won't know. And that definitely helps me with, like, understanding, like, why they do stuff a certain way and, like, helps me in getting stuff done. So, yeah. As a, how many different um, locations have you been to throughout your career? in the uh, Navy? So uh, I did my basic training down in Jarvis Bay. Uh, I then went up and did um, some of my job training at HMS Watson in Watson's Bay. And then I pretty much joined a ship. I pretty much got flown to Singapore and I joined a mine hunter in Singapore and sailed back from Singapore. So I went to Singapore, ran out there for about four weeks. And then we sailed to Indonesia, sailed through Darwin, Cairns and down. 
Um, but I've been pretty much all over Australia, done some courses over in Perth, um, spent three years down in Canberra at uh, the Defence Force Academy, uh, and then I've spent a time, some time at HMS Watson again. So, yeah, I've been all over Australia. It's been pretty good. What's, like, the best place you've docked at? Uh, I feel like I like Darwin a lot. It's grown on me a whole lot in the time I've been up here. Um, it's pretty, like, laid back in the attitude um, just around town and stuff like that. I reckon Darwin's probably one of my famous favourite places. Um, yeah, that's overseas. I've only been to Singapore and Indonesia. Uh, I love Singapore. I thought it was a great, great little country. You know, people there were pretty welcoming and we got to do a whole lot because we were there for quite a while. So when you dock at, like, Singapore, is the whole crew, like, you can just run around for a little bit, not get too plastered or come back, you know, uh, good state of mind. <laughs> so uh, every time we dock, um, every time we go into a – we come alongside, we'll berth, and then um, the ship constantly has a duty watch on board. So it's the duty watch's responsibility to look after the ship um, during that time, and the rest of the crew doesn't have to be, be there. So there'll be jobs you'll have to do during the day, so – you know, you'll come alongside and, you know, something might be broken. So the engineers will stay back and they'll fix that while the rest of the crew can go and leave and vice versa. But so we'll usually rotate through and there'll probably be one officer who's the officer of the day and it's their responsibility to look after the entire ship. And then there'll be a few sailors who'll walk, work underneath them to do all the jobs. So like man the gang away, uh, maintain watches on like any engineering stuff we've got. So yeah, there's always a constant duty watch on board. Yeah, and the rest of the team just gets a little bit rowdy in Singapore. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of people. A lot of people will go out quite a few times. We'll pull into like uh, we pulled into Cairns a couple of months ago. Whole crew went out, had a few beers. Um, I had to call it early because um, I was duty the next day, so I came back in. But they stayed out pretty late that night. <laughs> How long do you usually um, dock at another country for? Uh, it'll usually be at three to four days. Um, so we'll usually, I haven't done much, uh, any, I haven't done any overseas stuff um, when I've been on patrol. It's a lot of that got cut away because of COVID. Um, a lot of our work has been really severely restricted because of COVID restrictions. But um, we'll usually pull into a port for about three days if we're going to pull in and we're going to step ashore. Um, but sometimes, and how we've been working over the past couple of months is, we uh, will just refuel, restore, and then we'll go straight back out to sea so we're not actually getting a chance to step ashore. So does that mean you guys, like, refuel? Um, so, like, if you need food, restock on food, does that mean you get it from whatever local area it is or do you have, like, enough food for that entire duration at sea? So we'll have um, – we have uh, logistics officers who work ashore and it's their job to organise our food to be waiting for us on the dock. So they'll organise it locally for whatever port we're pulling into. So it's like we went to Thursday Island recently just to refuel and we got Thursday Island local produce as our fruit and veg just to replace our stocks, just so we could have some fresh fruit again. It was getting pretty old eating canned vegetable, frozen stuff. Is that what a lot of you guys eat, just frozen? Is it freeze-dried as well? Yeah, so it's a lot of freeze-dried stuff, but... um. The first about, say, about 10 days, it's all fresh fruit, fresh um, fresh veggies and stuff like that. 
Uh, and then after that, it starts to get into the real frozen stuff. And I imagine they're not too particularly good by the end oh, of Oh, no, they're still good, but you can just always taste the difference. We've got uh, the two chefs I have working on board my boat are great. They, um, they love to cook and it's, you know, it's their responsibility to put good meals out for us. And uh, it's also their reputation. If they start cooking pretty bad meals, everyone remembers them for that. But okay, if they cook yeah. consistently good meals, they're, no one will remember them, but they don't have a bad reputation. <laughs> so having a good chef on board is like an essential. <laughs> yeah, 100% essential. We've got two really good chefs on board and they love to cook. Um, so they'll always do like whatever. We'll give them suggestions and, you know, show them a recipe. And they're more than willing to try it out, put it on the line for everyone to try. And if everyone loves it, they'll keep cooking it. That's too easy. What about if someone's got like, um, you know, vegan, paleo? Are they just like, well, um, you get what you get, bro? Or... So uh, for the Navy, we try and accommodate everyone. That's definitely one of the things we try and do. So uh, we got, if there's someone that's vego, they'll always, they'll, they'll make sure there's a vego option for that person. They'll cook it up for them. So they're going to get enough, uh, you know, nutrition for the day. But uh, when you go on operations uh, or you go out field, you're given a rat pack. That's it. There's no vegan or vegetarian versions of the rat packs anymore. It's that's all you got. You're going to have to eat it. Everyone's allergies kind of disappear. Food allergies disappear oh, after that. Allergies are, allergies are different. So, like, you know, if you're allergic to peanuts, they're obviously not going to force you to eat it. But... Everyone's really nice. Like when you go out field, there's certain stuff everyone enjoys to eat and certain stuff, you know, I like this stuff, they don't. So you usually swap around and stuff. So usually you can get what you want. Um, if uh, there is a vegetarian is pretty strict, usually everyone would just give them all their like two minute noodles there in the packets and stuff like that, or like their bread or their canned fruit, just so they've actually got enough. And then they'll usually take their main meals, which usually have some meat in them often. That's pretty cool. So like everyone kind of like chips in to make sure everyone's yeah, yeah. like everyone's pretty much set and sweet. Yeah. So usually like straight away you'll crack open your rat pack. You'll get out like pretty much. I usually I was good friends with the vegetarian. Whenever we went out field, every time I got a fresh rat pack, I'll just hand her the uh, the fruit and the bread and usually the noodles as well, and she'll just give me one of her main meals, which was like more than well more than enough fair trade for me in my eyes i've got another main meal have you ever thought about um when you're what well, you've only been to a few like international docks but have you ever thought about um so like australia and us having different naval bases in other countries do you ever like think about like is that kind of like a weird feeling so if you can like let's say if we have a naval base in singapore and almost like we're, we're not occupying, but like have a, you know, have your foot in that country that's not a part of Australia. Is it always like a bit of a weird thought? Uh, I don't view it as a weird thought. I view it as like, to me, it's a strategic asset. If you've got a foothold in a country where you can um, have ships based out of, that's great. You now have it just increased your range and, you know, your capability to, um, work in that that initial little uh, region drastically so you're not going to have to get fuel from other ports. You can organise stuff internally. So when I was in Singapore, we pulled into the US port in Samboang. 
So that was just a U.S. base. So there was frigates and destroyers from U.S. all, um, you know, docked around us, and it was their base. But, you know, um, it's just a part of, I feel like it's a part of, like, working in defence. You know, everyone works at each other's bases and stuff like that. And having a, if we had a base somewhere else, it'd be great. I mean, we could run out of that base pretty easily. Oh, okay. Actually, I actually didn't know that. I thought, like, an, if an Australian ship sets sail, they kind of have to go to an Australian occupied port. I didn't know they actually went to the different occupying ports, international ports, kind of like share share with other other nations. That's yeah. pretty interesting. Um, so I, when I was went to Indonesia, we docked at just a cargo dock. There was just a big cargo ship in front of us, and that was it. Does it we had some, uh, yeah, we ahead, had some extra security, but, but that was it. <laughs> is there any, like, countries that won't let you dock in their located international areas? Oh, uh, there always is a few countries that, like, you know, depending on – I don't know them off the top of my head, but there yep. would be a few that, you know, Australia, Australia wouldn't be allowed to, you know, uh, berth their ship in. Uh, or land aircraft because it is military. But um, I know that American uh, aircraft carriers, because they're on nuclear powered, aren't allowed to um, actually berth in New Zealand. New Zealand won't allow them into their waters because they don't have any nuclear power. Really? Nuclear powered? Yeah. Is that for like all their ships or like their more larger naval ships? So they're aircraft carriers and they're... Um, Submarines are all nuclear powered. Yeah, right. I didn't. I had no idea. Does Australia do that as well? Was that everything just no, diesel? No, we all run off uh, marine diesel, and uh, because you know we don't have any nuclear powered anything in Australia, but also the resources required to run that would be huge, and it would require you know pretty much building a whole industry in Australia to support you know that maintaining a few ships. Yeah, nuclear powered ships at sea. That is insane. Does that mean, have you actually seen those American nuclear-powered naval ships like operate a little bit? Uh, I haven't seen them. I've actually seen one of them. They're huge. They're on another scale. So the two LHDs that we have in Sydney, um, these ships are almost double the size. Um, They've got almost an indefinite endurance. They can stay out at sea for however long they need to stay out at sea, and they'll just get replenished with food. So they're just a powerhouse and they're like, wherever they need to go, they can go. There's no, oh, we can't get there because of fuel. They don't have any need to worry about fuel. I think they've got 50 years at sea running at full speed before the nuclear reactor is dead. That is insane. That is a definite game changer for anyone to have. It is, yeah. Do you have any um, sites set on? outside of um, the military and the Navy? Any future goals or anything you think about or do you just want everything to be somewhat centred around or related to military life? Uh, when I first started, everything was definitely centred around military life, but I'm definitely now moving towards having a, a very good work, work-life work um, balance because it can be tough at times, especially if you're living on base. You don't actually get ever get that break from work so you're constantly you know you're at work you know you're eating at the mess there you know you don't have that break you know where you get to just chill out so um currently you know just just trying to like maintain hobbies and stuff like that so you know going to the gym 
Um, really like diving, but apart from that, I don't really have any goals in the immediate future for personal life. Most of them are just in the military because it's easy, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, that's good. That's like good, good vision to have. What do you do in that that downtime then for the for your hobbies and that? Um, gym, play a bit of PlayStation with the guys from the boat. Um, we go to like a few of the swimming holes out around Darwin. Uh, every now and again, I go forward driving with some of the guys. Yeah, that's really much, pretty much it. Just having a good, just being able to switch off after work, chill out, watch some Netflix, not have to worry about, you know, cleaning your room for an inspection or something like that. It's always really good. Can it be a bit hard sometimes to like switch off between work and just like just trying to chill out, clear your head a little bit? Yeah, it definitely can be, um, especially if you've got like, if you're under the pump at work, you'll finish at work for the day, you'll come home, you'll do a bit of study, then you'll go straight to bed, you'll wake up, you go back to work, and you really feel like you're just constantly working and there's no break. So it can be, t- at times, really tough to just switch off. But after a while, you know, everyone gets used to the work, military life and they always find time or they find something they do that really helps them switch off. Yeah. Because I imagine it might be a little bit tougher for you because you got that, you know, like a somewhat serious leadership role where you kind of got to be switched on and almost have everyone you know under under control everyone has to be like stayed everyone has to stay calm and you kind of have to be a little bit ahead of the curve because when things go wrong they will look to you straight away for that direct objective and leadership does that get a little bit across your mind as well yeah it does at times but probably the hardest thing for me is all my sailors and all the young sailors that um i work with on the boat they're all my age so they're all in their young 20s, you know, they're all wanting to go out. They're all doing the stuff that I want to do on the weekends. But there's always that time where you've got to draw that line. You'd be like, oh, I'm not going to go out and do that with some of the guys, you know, I'll just stay back or, you know, call in a night early because you don't want it to get messy or stuff like that. So you've got to have that professional professionalism at all times, essentially. And keeping that professionalism at all times can always, you know, it can be tough. It can be feel like sometimes you put it on an act. Um, and not being yourself, but it's just part of being also you have to learn how to draw that line of where, you know, you can be their friend, but you're also you're still their boss when they come to work the next day. Yeah. Does it feel like, um, you know, do you get that feeling of um, being in the military, like it is a job rather than it is, I guess, um, some other, occupa- uh, lack of a better word, occupation? Like can you, does it feel the difference between work and, personal life and whatnot it's such a big part of um like almost it's almost part of who i am being in the military so i feel like it's just a part of the life it's like a almost a lifestyle you know it doesn't work for some people but if it does work for you it's great you get to be with work with your mates every day you know you get to go to the gym it's encouraged uh you get to do some cool stuff but other times, you know, you can't switch off. So it is, it's pretty much, it's a lifestyle, in my opinion, being in the military. That's doozy, bro. And you're killing it as well, which is like amazing. I'm to trying see. to. Bro, you are. Like commanding ships four hours a day, got a whole bunch of staff that look up to you for leadership, bro. That's, that is cracker of like a lifestyle you live in, bro. And like when you think about it, like even in, for people who don't know, like you and I went to high school together and people like so many people in our year have like done so much 
in their early 20s. So, like, Ben Davis playing for Adelaide and AFL. you got Lachlan, Lachlan Lamb, Nat Butcher in the same team, the Roosters, NRL. They won the championship, only being 22, 23. And then you also got yourself and a few other guys, uh, Ryan in particular, in the army, is uh, in the military as well. Just like, it's crazy to think people in our year and how young we are, like everyone is, and they're just like crushing it already in life. It feels so long ago being in high school. Like, I don't know if it's just been like my time in the military. Like I was thinking the other day, I thought someone that I joined with was that I went to high school with because it felt like it was that long ago, but it's only ever been five years. Yeah. But it's definitely, it's pretty cool when you look back and you see guys post stuff on like their social media of like them doing stuff. You're like, wow, that person's actually doing something pretty cool. And it's getting more and more common as everyone starts to post their stuff they're doing. You know, people getting jobs in like really cool places. I really, it's really it's good to see everyone starting to do stuff. And like yourself, you started on your own little business here, which I looked at. It looked pretty cool. Yeah, bro. It was like, uh, it literally just came on the back of last year when everything was, you know, all non-essential travel occupations, jobs were like, you know, closed. I was actually going to go to um, New York to a, like one of the best jujitsu gyms in the world with um, a mate of mine, shout out to Zach Waterhouse um, and go to New York, Henzo Gracie gym. Uh, all that got shut down and New York was like one of the worst places that were hit with the virus, which was really devastating and, somewhat lucky as well because we would him and I we went would have been stuck over there in like probably the worst possible places you could be yeah and so you know because after basketball try to like get a college scholarship try to get like a almost like a pro career in that that I kind of filled that void with jujitsu and trying to make a pro career out of that but um between being a pro jiu-jitsu practitioner and basketball is like, it's kind of chalk and cheese because on one end, you know, there's a lot more money in basketball being a pro athlete than if you do competitions and whatnot in jiu-jitsu because it's such a, like a niche sport and such a small sport, the money, you know, prize money isn't there yet where you can make a yeah. decent living. So that's why you see a lot of jiu-jitsu practitioners, they, they utilize uh, making instructionals if they're specifically related in some sort of skill set. So leg locks being an absolute, you know, goldmine for jujitsu with knowledge and instructional videos. Then you also got, you know, sem- people teaching seminars, but in saying that to teach a seminar, you kind of have to be a reputable, you know, individual with like accredited, wins and whatnot not everyone can you know go to host their own seminar because you kind of need you know you kind of need that um status you can't just be a blue belt kind of need to be yeah you gotta have that credit you have the credentials to like back it up yeah so just from that um dived in to try and you know build this business and utilizing a bit of diversity with the podcast Trying to do a few vlogs that should be coming out in yeah. the coming time. Keen, yeah. I'm keen to see how you guys go and like you know, like what you guys actually progress is like you know your own little company. Yeah, like it's definitely, definitely hard and 
appreciate all the guys who help out because, you know, some guys from high school, you know, I take picks. Like, they're literally like the talent, the model shoot. And then on my end, I have to put together all the content, all these items and just literally it, it is a bit of a headache sometimes to try and make everything on brand and whatnot, try and make things a little bit more engaging. You know, it is hard work, but it's like, it's fun as well. Like it's definitely fun because you're almost upskilling yourself and learning a whole bunch of new tools and that, which I hope will be useful one day. Yeah. If you're enjoying it, then you're not really working then. Yeah, exactly. It is definitely, it's a tall task to do because, you know, nothing, the dial doesn't move unless if I make it move, that makes sense. Yeah. To push, start the car, I've got to push it myself. Can't really stick the key because, you know, car, you know, car broke it down the side of the road. You got to just start pushing it yourself, but it's definitely fun. And so probably future of this podcast, try and get a lot of, few more guys went to school with you know catch up as well and share everyone's experience because everyone yeah. everyone's pretty much killing it it's good That's to good. see yeah bro and good good to see you bro i haven't seen you so long bro missed you so much bro <laughs> it's been so long bro, i haven't yeah. seen i really caught up with anyone uh hoping to move back to sydney uh probably in may this year you know get my own place you know actually have a life back in sydney for once so it'll be good <laughs> That's dude, I'd bro. actually get catching it with everyone. Yeah. I mean, just it's a long time to be like away from everyone as well, sailing around and pointing at different locations in, you know, Asia and Australia. It can be tough at times, but the guys I work with, they pretty much become your family. You know, I know more about these guys than I like should really know, but Everyone, everyone just becomes super close and they always become your, your next little family. You go into them for stuff you need before you like asking your, your family because they're right there. You know, they understand what you're going through more than anything. Yeah. And at lesser extent, you can kind of say that if you, for those who like train constantly with jujitsu and I guess with other um, combat sports where like you're absolutely going at each other, trying to, obliterate each other with you know either like submissions or throws or your fists or your shins to their temples you kind of like those regular training partners you do grow a bit of a very unique relationship because you kind of push each other and you kind of like make each other hurt really (laughs) you like hurt each other like in in a different way it's like i'm not trying to hurt someone because I don't like them it's more like oh how would you it's it's lack of better understanding it is a di- it's a different vibe yeah you're you both sport. suffering together yeah exactly you're suffering it, yeah. Extent, and you can you get that like camaraderie and you build that team and you know the understanding of each other just because you've suffered together and you know you know what how they react when they're under a lot of stress and they know how you react when you're under a lot of stress yeah, exactly. Because you kind of like feed off each other. You kind of learn a lot about each other when people are under stress. It's the same, yeah. same with, you know, not just sport and but like life as well. You learn a little more about yourself and others when people are strangling you or putting you under a lot of tension. Yeah. Yeah. When you're under stress, you know, you, you see how people truly are and how they're going to react. 
you know, that's when you can, that's when you learn the most about people, in my opinion, when they're stressed out, they're tired, they haven't eaten, you know, they've got a million things going on in their head, you know, if they can maintain a happy attitude and, you know, keep that upbeat, they're really, you know, they're just going to be good guys to hang around with and, you know, you're going to always go to them. Was that um, ever evident when you were going through those training phases, like people just overwhelmed with all that pressure and tension and physical exhaustion? Yeah, some people can get very overwhelmed and, you know, they can almost give up. You know, you can see some people who, there's a maintain attitude of just getting through it, you know, they're happy to keep doing it. And you get the other people who they're in it for like the wrong, in my opinion, the wrong reasons to be in defense. You know, they're in it for, you know, the free degree they're going to get out of that file or they're in it for, you know, a four year job. While some people can do that, but you have to have that attitude of, you know, I want to, I joined for a reason, you know, I'm going to continue I'm going to step up to the plate and continue to work hard, even when, you know, no one's watching. That must be really, really, I guess, tough to see someone who is in it for the wrong reason. And I guess, I guess they, they kind of get weeded out later on, you know, if they make it through basic training, because, you know, there are, they have super good physical abilities, but I guess they, well, they definitely will be like a hindrance if their mindset isn't aligned with what everyone else is. Yeah, they, they definitely can be a hindrance, but um, defense isn't no longer defense isn't about recruiting the. Um, they've they've come to realize that not everyone needs to be able to run a sub uh, nine minute two point four or do a hundred push ups to cadence. They've realized that certain jobs they actually require people who are incredibly smart or they have an in-depth knowledge of a field that typically won't have someone who, or it won't, it might not have someone who's incredibly fit All those incredibly fit people who do have that knowledge don't want to join defense because they're doing something else. So we've actually started branching out and like defense now looking and it's looking at partnering into, you know, creating fields. So like cyber security, um, defense has expanded that recently and we went to people who weren't actually um, the fittest people but and like you're typically a person that you would count as defense but they were like essentially in defense and they were able to do the job we required so it's no longer about getting that defense isn't about being fit um, it's about being able to do the job that you're required to do that's pretty interesting in that's really interesting what you said like they're kind of branching out to different more tech areas yeah, so war, um, warfare has basically become a lot more um, technology-based uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, it's gone from firing shells at each other to now firing missiles. Um, and these missiles are incredibly smart. They can pick up anything we used to you know, get through the missiles. So it's all about looking at things differently. Uh, it's, it's what's going to help us you know, be successful so the standard for the basic standard for the Navy, when you look at it, it's quite low for fitness, but, um, and you would look at it and you'd be like, oh, that's not much, but everyone is able to continue to do their jobs. And a lot of people will actually go above and beyond that fitness standard because it will help them do their job or their basic job keeps them at that level of fitness way more than, um, you know, training would. 
yeah, like with everything becoming more technology based, um, I remember a, a gentleman telling me because he was in the army, he was saying there was like such a there's been such a high demand for fighter pilots, but because with fighter fighter pilots, what I didn't really know, it's more than just looking at say out the window pointing the airplane it's more like they got to you know guide the plane look out the window but also look at their onboard computers and radars and fuel and all these other factors and you're saying it was such a such a high stress job that you know it's it gets to a lot of people and then renders a lot of people i guess not um not unfit but like the stress level for them is like so high that they they can't do it they can't be a fighter pilot for too long because they've just got to keep their eyes on like 10 different things at one time while flying at how fast do they go about 250 an hour kilometers an hour oh more? they can go yeah way more than that yeah and then i was kind of like thinking to myself well why don't you just why doesn't like defense force kind of like look into those people who can fly drones and just more like drone guess drone based because then you don't really need all that stress of someone being in an actual cockpit almost risking their lives and then there's like such a high pressure situation to be in a plane going you know so fast and potentially something going wrong is like so evident yeah drones are definitely going to be a big part of the future um, just because their capability that they present, um, you know, it's pretty much uh, people truly haven't realised what they're actually going to be able to do in the future. I don't think anyone really has. But there's always going to be a need for a pilot to, you know, actually fly the plane. You know, they're going to look at things and they're going to see things that uh, someone flying a drone from a building might not actually see. So their instruments could be saying one thing on their dash, but, you know, they could feel the aircraft pulling in a certain way, you know, and that could help them determine, like, you know, a better better course of action. Exactly, yeah, because you kind of got that when you're actually in the plane or, you know, it doesn't have to be a plane, but, like, even driving, you kind of get that, uh, what's the word, kinesthetic sense of, like... Yeah, you, you have that you feel. That feel. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like race car drivers, they know when they're... You know, they're on the edge of their limit of their grip when they're turning. So same with pilots. They'll know when they're on the edge of their, you know, their limit. You know, same with the ship. Eventually you learn how the ship handles really well. So, you know, you can pull it up a lot faster. You can handle it a lot more precisely just because you learn the characteristics of your ship. Exactly. All right, bro. That's been a doozy of a podcast this episode. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. I think it's been like, what? Hour and almost two hours or something? Hour and a half? Yeah. Hour and a half, yeah, about that. That's doozy, bro. You got any plugs? Any shout-outs? Any you want to mention? No, I got no shout-outs. <laughs> no shout-outs, no plugs, no social plugs or anything? No, nothing like that. All right. It was good catching up with you, right. Ewan. Good Appreciate chat. it. All right. All right. Thanks for having me on. No worries, bro. Good luck out there. You too. Later, bro. See you, man.